0: Parsha's Mishpatim. The Rambam points out that Parsha's Mishpatim is a v- unusual Parsha in the sense that it is goes through quite a number of mitzvahs. There are actually 53 mitzvahs in this Parsha, 24 aseis and 23, I'm sorry, 21 los assays. And the Ramban explains that this Parsha is almost an explanation on losachmod. <clears throat> Recently we just had in the last part we had the Aserah dibros The last of the was don't <coughs> covet. But <coughs> coveting means that you desire someone else's property. Before you can know what Losachmod is, you have to know <coughs> what someone else's property is, what makes it his property, what's my property. And therefore, to help define Losachmod, Hashem gave the parsha of Mishpatim, which are basically laws of justice, laws of ownership, and most of the mitzvahs in this parsha deal with exactly that. And because it is a parsha which really goes through quite a number of mitzvahs, what I'd like to do is take mitzvah by mitzvah, a number of them, and see what kind of insights we can have from that. But before we go to that, let's begin with the first pasak. mishpatim These are the mishpatim, these are the statutes, but statutes meaning laws of mishpat, laws of justice. Ashtasim lifneihem that you shall place in front of them. Now, the pasuk uses an unusual expression. Normally, when Hashem tells Moshe to tell over to, to the Bnei Israel, Hashem says an expression of, Hashem el Moshe lemor." Hashem said to Moshe to say over. Here, there are two things unusual about the pasuk. The Pesach says, these are the mishpatim, these are the judge, judgments, these are the laws. I shall toss him, that you shall place Lifneim in front of them. So the first problem is, what do you mean, ashatasim, that you shall place? I guess you should say that you you should tell over. Rashi explains that Hashem is teaching Moshe Rabbeinu a very important lesson. Amar lo lo Moshe, Hashem said to lo tala daitcha lo upon him. Don't think that you'll suffice if you'll tell them over the halachas twice or three times until they know it clearly. That's not enough. I want you to make sure that you do more than that. And don't say, I'm not going to be matreach myself to really explain to them. No, says Hashem, you have to explain to them Tamidvarim. E you have to explain to them the reasons behind things, and you have to lay it out, kashulchan oruch umuchan adam. like a table that's set in front of a man ready to eat. When the Torah uses the expression, ashtasim, that you shall place, and says Hashem to Moshe, I want you to lay the table, I want you to prepare the table, make sure that it's all laid out in front of them, ready to eat. And in fact, Shulchan Aruch, which is the main body of law that governs our lives, is called Shulchan Aruch, table laid out, table set, from this very medrash that Rashi brings down. And if we think about this Rashi, I think it's actually quite interesting, because what Hashem was saying to Moshe was, don't think that you'll get away with telling them twice or three times until they know the halachas very clearly, no, that's not enough. Don't say that I'm not going to be matriach myself, I'm not going to bother myself with explaining the Tami Advarim. No, you have to explain to them the reasons behind everything. Now, you might wonder, was Moshe Beno lazy? Moshe Beno wouldn't want to you know, explain things? I believe what Rashi is teaching is a, is a fundamental concept. It could well be, and one would argue, that the Torah has two components to it. There are the halachas of the Torah, And then there are deep understandings, reasons behind them, and the intricacies of the logic and the entire system of Gemara and understanding. You might say, the hamon am, the average man, only needs to know the halacha. Let him know the halachas. We'll tell him over the halachas two or three times. He'll review them. He'll know what he needs for his daily life. And maybe I shouldn't be matriach myself, says Moshe to himself. Why should I trouble him? because he's not going to understand it anyway it's not his place, he doesn't need it why should I trouble myself to explain all the reasons behind all the rationales all the logic, he doesn't need that anyway says Hashem to Moshe -uh. nah, that's not the way it is you have to lay it in front of them like a table, you have to explain to them the reasons behind it because for every Jew that is a part of their mesorah that is a part of their heritage yes, it's very important to know the halachas But the reasons behind it, the depth of reason that's accessible and that's available for the Hamon Am for everyone, it's not for the elite. It's not only for the Yeshiva Baruch who learned for 10 years or 20 years in Yeshiva. The lumdus of the Torah, the depth of the Torah, the reasons behind are accessible and available to everyone. And I believe this Rashi is sharing with us a deep concept in terms of the accessibility of Torah for the Hamon Am for everyone and the fact that that's the way Hashem wants it to be learned. So that explains to us why Hashem used the expression, Elam Mishvatim Mishat Tassim, and you shall place. But what does Lifnei mean, in front of them? It should say, these are the mitzvahs that you should tell them. What do you mean that you should place in front of them? So that, that's the Kenan brings down a Midrash that's quite interesting. And the Gemara makes a Drosha, Lifnei Hem, V'lo Lifnei Avodikachavim. The mich, These mishpatim, these laws, are for the Jewish people, not for the Gentiles. And Adasa Canem explains this with a medrash. He explains that Unculus was actually a convert. In every Chumash that you'll find, almost every Chumash, the Targum that's become almost universally accepted is Unculus. Unculus began as a nephew of the Caesar. The Caesar at the time was Andrianus, and his sister's son was Unculus. And Unculus decided that he wanted to convert, but he was afraid of his uncle. And he was afraid of what his uncle would do. So one day, Unculus goes to his uncle and says, Uncle, I would like to go overseas, and I'd like to study business, and I'd like to ask you for advice. His uncle says, My nephew, please, do you need money? My oats or my treasury is open in front of you, please, whatever you need take. No, my uncle, it's not that I need money. It's that I'd like to study people. I'd like to get to understand people better. I'd like to go into business so I could deal with people and understand them better. Please, my uncle, give me advice. What pragmatia, what merchandise, what business should I go into? So Andriana says to him, find a merchandise that currently is devalued. Find a merchandise that right now is selling for cheap. No one understand that everything has a cycle buy it now that it's cheap, it won't be long before it goes up in value, and when it goes up, you'll sell it, and you'll do very well. And with those words, Unkelis <coughs> took leave of his uncle. <coughs> Uncleus went to Eretz Israel, and he went to learn in yeshiva there. And when he came to the yeshiva, <coughs> and he asked to learn, <coughs> the tanoim there said to him, you cannot learn. Rabbi Loza and Rabbi Yeshua <coughs> agreed him, and he said, you cannot learn. Because you're not Jewish, you don't have a bris milah, and it's not going to work. So Unculus, at that point, was Megayer. He got a bris, went to mikveh, became Jewish, and he began learning. He learned and he learned, and he was tremendously immersed in learning. He came back to that same yeshiva, to the Yeshua and Rabbi Lazar, and they noticed that his face looked different. He had changed. And then they said, obviously, Unculus has learned the Torah. Uncleus began asking them many, many questions, and he recognized that he was becoming a serious Talmud Chacham. He continued learning, <coughs> continued growing, and at a certain point, <coughs> Uncleus went back to his uncle. And when his uncle saw him, his uncle also noticed that he looked very different. So his uncle said, Unkelis, why, do why does your face look so different? <coughs> Uncleus answered, I learned Torah. His uncle said, fine, so why... Do you still look different? Not only did I learn Torah, but I was a I became a Jew. His uncle said, why did you do that? <clears throat> well, I, they told me that you can't learn Torah unless you become a Jew, and so that's what I did. Why would you do such a foolish thing? <clears throat> why would you do that, his uncle says. <clears throat> My uncle, I took advice from you. You said to me, find a schorah, find a merchandise that currently is devalued, and eventually will rise. I looked amongst all the nations. I couldn't find a single nation that was as Mavuza, as embarrassed, as ill-treated as the Jewish people. And I know in the future, they'll be lofty because they're God's holy people. I took your advice, my uncle. Andrianus was so impressed with Unculus' logic that he took his hand and he slapped Unculus in the face. You could have learned Torah. You didn't have to be McGuire. and says, Unculus, I could not have. Magi Yaakov, Mishpat of Israel, Torah is only accessible to Jewish people. <clears throat> Goy cannot learn. It explains the Dazakanim. That's what the Posak means. the Torah is not just the Yerusha, not just the inheritance of the Jewish people, but it's in front of the Jewish people that it's accessible, that it's available. <clears throat> if you have a neshama of a Jew, you can delve into the Torah, you can understand it to its depth. If not, it won't work. And I believe that this Dasa is sharing with us a profound concept. Because I believe we'd be hard-pressed to find a man more intelligent than Unkelas. Unkelas wrote Targum. The role of Targum is to take all of the meaning of the Torah, and take the very essence of it, and translate it into a different language. It requires knowing kol ha Many words in Hebrew cannot be translated. Many words in Shema, for instance, cannot be translated because they carry too many nuances, too many different variations and shades of meaning, and they cannot be translated into a different language. Yet Uncle has had such profundity, such a grip of Torah knowledge, that he was able to define the essence of each Pesach and translate it into Aramaic, and his Targum became universally accepted because he was a profound Talmud Chochum. So clearly, he was a very, very intelligent person. Number two, Uncleus was very motivated. Keep in mind the fact that his uncle was the Caesar. His uncle was mighty, his uncle was powerful, and anything that Uncleus needed, he could easily get from his uncle. He was born to a life of riches, luxuries, power, and privilege. And he gave it all up. Why? Because he saw the truth, and he pursued it. So here's the question. If Uncleus was so brilliant, and he was so motivated, why couldn't he have remained a guy and learnt? Why do you have to convert? He comes to the Tanayim, and they say to him, it won't work. It won't work. Why not? He's brilliant, and he's super motivated. Why can't an intelligent person sit down and learn the mishpatim. These are laws. These are tort laws. These are laws of civil engagements. There's nothing so absolutely abstract about this. Why can't a Gentile learn this? And what the Medrash is sharing with us is that while there is a surface level to every mishpat, to every halacha in Chosh Mishpat, there are layers and layers of depth behind it, and there's tremendous amount of profundity, that you cannot access unless you have a neshama that's ready for it. Hashem wrote the Torah with tremendous depth behind it. Every word, every sentence, every nuance contains layers and layers of depth, and you need a neshama that's receptive, that's able to understand it. And the reason why Onkelis could not have learned Torah as a guy was not because he wasn't smart, and not because he wasn't motivated, but because he didn't have the kelim. Necessary. He didn't have the tools. He wasn't a receptacle for the Torah because he had the neshama of a guy. He had to become a Jew. Once he had a different neshama, now there was a receptivity. Now he could plummet the depth. Now he could dig in and really understand because now he was ready for it. And I believe the lesson for us is actually quite interesting because what it means in plain, simple language is that every Jew is receptive to the Torah. I have a neshama that's ready for it and I can access it. So I believe what this Possek is sharing with us is, <laughs> says Hashem to Moshe, don't think that it's enough for the Hamon Am to know the halachas. Don't think you'll say it to them twice or three times and they'll have it down pat. That's not enough. They have to know all of the depth, all of the profundity. They have to know shasim postkim. They have to delve into things and fully understand it. And they're capable. Why? Because they have an Hashemah of a Jew they're receptive, it comes to them naturally, and therefore Hashem outlines to Moshe how it is that he should give over the Torah to the Bnei Yisrael. Now what I'd like to do is go through a few of the mitzvahs in this parsha and see if we could learn some of the lessons from it, and we'll sort of skip because there's no, excuse my expression, no storyline per se, because it's from mitzvah to mitzvah, and let's go one by one and see what we can gain from it. The Pesach says, If a man kills another man, he is put to death. That's a concept of a mazid killer. If Ruvain intentionally, with warning and witnesses, kills Shimon, he's put to death, he killed the he killed intentionally, he's chayeth misa, he's given a capital punishment. However, if he didn't intend a different case, if Ruven didn't intend to kill Shimon, Velochim Ina liyado, and Hashem brought it about, then that's a different story. And here we have the introduction to the concept of a shogi killer, and one who killed unintentionally, who sent to Ari Miklat. So if Ruven killed intentionally, he's Chaimisa, he's obligated to be killed. It was mazed intentionally, he's killed. However, if he did it unintentionally, then he's sent to the Arimiklat. He has to run to the city of exile, and there's an entire parsha that explains to us what happens. Hashem wants to protect him. <clears throat> Hashem doesn't want to allow the Gol Hadam, the avenger, to kill him. <clears throat> so we have to set up Ari Mikla. we have to set up different cities. There has to be signs there, there has to be food there. <clears throat> All of his needs have to be met to protect this shogi killer because he's innocent. He doesn't deserve to die, and therefore the Torah goes well out of its way to make sure that he's protected. However, what's interesting to note is how the Pesach says it. The Pesach says, <clears throat> If Ruvein did not intend, and Hashem brought it about. And Rashi says, what does ina mean? Ziman liodo. Hashem prepared it. Meaning, what happened if Ruvein didn't intend to kill Shimon, but Hashem set him up for it? Hashem prepared it. he didn't aim the gun, he was shooting out somewhere, and Hashem arranged, orchestrated that Shimon should be right in the path of the bullet. Then, oh, he's a shogi killer, he goes to the Arya Miklat. <clears throat> Rashi is bothered by the problem. Why would Hashem do that? Why would Hashem set him up for failure? Shimon didn't, Ruven <clears throat> didn't intend to kill Shimon. <clears throat> Why would Hashem, Zimen prepare it that he should kill him? So Rashi explains <clears> that this is a concept of Magoglan, Shkhusai Zakai, Hashem brings about good things through good people. Dechaev and bad things through bad people. It explains Rashi that this is what the Gemara Makas refers to, where actually what happened was, it was a history before we met these two individuals. These two individuals each had an event happened in their life that caused them to be brought together in this moment. <clears throat> Ruvain had sometime earlier killed another man, Bishogit, unintentionally, but he was negligent, he was chopping wood, something of the like, and the handle flew off. Had he been more cautious, he would not have been chopping wood around people, but he wasn't. He was chopping wood, the handle of the axe fell off and killed a man. He's a shogi killer who deserves to go to Rai Mikla, but no one saw him. And he didn't report this, and he thought he was going to get away with it. Shimon, again years earlier, was involved in a situation, and he killed a man intentionally. He pulled out his knife, stabbed the man, killed him. But again, there were no witnesses, so Shimon as well thought that he was also going to get away with it. Years later, Hashem arranges that these two individuals should meet. Shimon is under a ladder, sitting there, resting, and Ruvain happens to be walking up the ladder, and Ruvain, as he's climbing on a rung, falls onto Shimon and kills Shimon. Witnesses see this. Shimon, who had killed earlier intentionally, is killed. Ruvain, who's climbing the ladder, is a sh- he had earlier killed unintentionally and thought he got away with it. He now is witnessed by people falling, killing Shimon Bishogeg. Then we're going to send this Ruvain into Gullus because that's what he deserved. Either way, perfect justice is meted out. <clears throat> Shimon deserved to die because he killed, and Ruvain deserved to go to the Arimikla, to the city of refuge, because he killed unintentionally. And that's exactly what happens, they meet again, Shimon is put to death, Ruvain is sent to the city of refuge. And Rashi explains that that's what it means, that Hashem arranges for this event to happen. And the only thing that's curious about this is that one should ask the following question. This Ruvain fellow doesn't sound like a particularly great guy. Originally, he was not careful, he was careless. And he acted in a way that the Torah considered as him a person has to leave the regular life. He can't lead a life of a regular man. He has to go into exile. He has to leave. He did that thing earlier, and he didn't report it. He didn't tell anyone. He thought of got away with it, and he was hiding. Ad kid to such an extent that Hashem has to arrange for him to get caught red-handed, and so he'll be sent away where he should be. If so, why is the Torah so concerned Oh, make sure that the the, the shogi killer is protected. Make sure there are signs on the road. Make sure there's enough food and water for him. The man is a killer, albeit an unintentional killer, but he's a killer. Why is the Torah so concerned for his benefit, so concerned for his good? And I believe the answer to this underscores the entire concept of punishment in the Torah. Hashem is all-powerful, and Hashem doesn't need any help. And Hashem doesn't have to take revenge. The Rishonim explained to us that if Hashem were ever angry at a human being, if Hashem could theoretically get angry, Hashem wouldn't punish the person, Hashem wouldn't bring a nuclear explosion to vaporize the person. Hashem would cease infusing energy into that person, and that person would cease to exist. Hashem is Yochel. Hashem is the energy source of all the physicality. There's nothing that could violate the will of Hashem, and there's no need for Hashem ever to get angry. Any punishment in the Torah is out of rachamim, out of mercy. You've damaged yourself. You've sullied yourself. If you were to die now, it would be a terrible thing. Why? Because for eternity, there's a black mark in you. For eternity, you would suffer. The punishments in the Torah, whether it be Malkus, whether it be Misa, all of the variant punishments in the Torah come out of chesed, out of kindliness, out of goodness. Why? Because it cleans up it's not retribution in the sense of paying back or justice in the sense of some wrong has been meted out and it has to be paid back. It's merciful, it's good, it's kindly because it allows the person to get rid of part of what he had done wrong. And as a matter of fact, the Shonim explained to us that Gehennim is the same. When a person dies, unless they're a great tzaddik, likely they'll spend a certain amount of time in Gehenim. It's not God's wrath. It's not God punishing the wicked. It's a huge chesed, a huge kindliness. Why? Because what I shape myself into, I am for eternity. Whatever great things I've done, I enjoy for eternity. But whatever things I've done wrong are with me forever. Gehenna is a time period that allows me somehow, some way, to get rid of some of those flaws, allows me to polish the diamond a little bit, And it's a tremendous chesed because it eliminates those things that otherwise would have plagued me for eternity. And I believe with the shogi killer, that's exactly what's happening. Hashem doesn't need to mete out justice because otherwise he'll get away with it. It's merciful. Hashem gave punishments in the Torah because Hashem loves the Jewish people. And if you've done something to sully yourself, to dirty yourself for eternity, it's a part of you. There's a kapara process, there's an atonement process that helps remove the sin, that helps clean you up, and the Torah is concerned, and even if you're not concerned, and even if you try to run away from it, <clears throat> Hashem makes sure to arrange it, that you'll meet and He'll meet, everything will be just, not just because Hashem is seeking vengeance, just because Hashem loves the Jewish people, and wants for them the best to happen, and therefore Hashem arranges these things to occur, <clears throat> as they occur. Let's move over <clears throat> to another concept, in Perak Chof Be'ez, if a man will steal a cow or a sheep, and he will either slaughter it and sell it. He has to pay five buckar for the shor. And four sheep for the, for, the, for the sheep that he stole. So this is a famous sugya brought in the Gemara. If a man steals a sheep or a cow and he then eats it, the halacha is that he has to pay dollar of a hay. Let's understand exactly what the Torah is saying. If a man steals a cow then and he's caught, he shechted it, he can't return the object, he has to pay five times that cow. They estimate the value of that cow and then five times that amount he has to pay back to the owner. However, if a man stole a sheep and ate it, Again, he can't pay back the sheep because the sheep is gone. And then he pays four times the sheep's value. Estimate the value of the sheep, and he has to pay back four times that animal to the original owner. Rashi is by the, indis- by the discrepancy. Why is it that a cow you pay back five times the value, and a sheep you only pay back four? Rashi brings down, Amr am Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai. Ha'shem had mercy... On the honor of creations, on the honor of man, <clears throat> the sure walks, and therefore the thief isn't embarrassed when he steals him. However, a sheep the ganov puts on his shoulders when a man steals a sheep, he reaches under the sheep, puts it on his shoulders, and runs out the door. he's embarrassed, therefore he only pays four. why? Because he already suffered and he was already embarrassed, so Rashi is telling us the reason behind this is because when the man stole the cow, he walked out clean. He just put a rope over around Elsie's neck and just walked out. But if he stole a sheep, he suffered embarrassment. For a human being, a dignified person, to put a sheep on his shoulders and have to put an animal on top, it's not. It's not nice. It's it's he he suffered. The Torah says, listen, he suffered. already, he doesn't have to pay back five. He already suffered some pain. He already suffered some punishment. He only has to pay back four times what he stole. My Rebbe, the Zetzal, asked a very penetrating question on this Rashi. And that is, we're dealing with a ganaf, a thief. The man is not thinking about the embarrassment to his nobility and his dignity. He's thinking about dinner. And he's thinking about the fact that this sheep is going to be delicious and wonderful, He's putting it on his shoulder because he's thinking about the money he's going to make. He's not focused on the dignity. He doesn't care. He cares about one thing, getting out of there. So why is it that his amount that he pays is lessened? And the Shri explained to us that a human being has a very fine nature. A human being is dignified. A human being is honorable. And even if he no longer lives up to those standards... And even if the way he conducts himself now is not that way, there's a pain deep down within him, <clears throat> subconsciously he feels it, and Chas HaKadosh Baruch Hashem says, Oy, he may not feel the pain, but I know it's there, it's deep deep down within him, <clears throat> there is a pain, he may not sense it, but it's there, and Hashem says, I, I can't punish him the full amount because <clears throat> he suffered already. And Hashem Zetzal stressed to us how sensitive Akarish Baruch is to the pain of human being, How much Hashem loves human beings and how that comes into mishpat. Even though what we're dealing with here is judgments and judgments are not supposed to have issues of mercy enter into it. Hashem felt that it's not right. If you steal a cow, you didn't suffer embarrassment, pay the full amount. But if you stole a sheep, you had to put it on your shoulder, you had to suffer embarrassment even though you didn't necessarily feel it consciously. It was there within you and Hashem factors that in so much that it lessens the actual amount and you only pay four times. And again, it's very illustrative of the love and mercy that Hashem has for us and the system of judgment that's called rachamim, and understanding that the Torah is Rachmona, The actual title of the Torah used by the Gemara all the time is Rachmona, referring to mercy, which is also one of the acronyms, one of the titles used for Hashem. Let's move over to the next pasuk, mechashifalosachaya, a witch you are not allowed to keep alive. The law is that if a person practices black magic, if he's male or female, it doesn't matter, but if he practices black magic, he's of misa, he's put to death. Now, let's understand what this passage is saying and what's happening here. In our world, we have something that's very commonly known as optical illusions. A person will stand up there and pull a rabbit out of his hat, or he'll make an object disappear. What he's doing is slate of hand. You know and I know what he's doing. It's achizas enayim. He's tricking the eye. It's smoke and mirrors. It's really just pretend. And what he's doing is, it's called magic, but it's just fanciful movements and very clever use of mirrors and etc. That's not what the Torah is referring to. Achizas enayim is not oser. Optical illusions are not forbidden. Torah is referring to black magic as in real black magic. Not making a rabbit seem to appear, but actually making a rabbit appear. Not making an object disappear, seemingly, but rather really making it disappear. And the Sefer Chinoch explains to us this mitzvah, and explains to us why it is that this person is Chayim Misa. <clears throat> explains to the Sefer Chinoch that every physical component in this world has a spiritual counterpart, There's nothing in the physical world that can exist without a spiritual component behind it, guiding it, telling it how to act, keeping its parameters in existence, and the sustenance of all physicality is a spiritual counterpart behind it. The sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, rocks, rivers, all have a spiritual dimension to them that keep them about, that sustain them. There is a certain knowledge, which modern man does not have, as to how to play with the upper worlds, how to move the spiritual worlds in such a way that it changes the physical world. Water is liquid and odorless, colorless, because the spiritual part of it commands it to remain that way. If one were fully skilled, knowledgeable, in the art of mechashefah, of black magic you would know how to manipulate the spiritual parts, and once you manipulate the spiritual part, the physical dimension that's manifest from it changes as well. A <clears> machshef <throat> is one who's schooled in the arts of navigating and manipulating the spiritual world to make changes in the physical world. And the reason Sefer Chinuch explains why the Torah is so <clears throat> treats it as such an egregious sin is because Hashem created a world in perfect order. We're not supposed to graft apples with other fruit. We're not supposed to do these type of things because we accept, as the Sefer Khin explains, accept the fact that Hashem created a perfect world with all of mankind's, with all of the animal kingdom's needs met. And when you graft an orange and a tangerine, what you're doing is you're changing the world. You're allowed to eat it and someone else does it, and as a Jew, we're not allowed to do it. Here, this is far deeper. Here what this person is doing is going into the spiritual dimensions that Hashem created to maintain the physical world, and that person is manipulating the spiritual dimension there by changing the physical world. He's negating that which Hashem did. Hashem created a perfect world with order, harmony, and balance, and he's messing with creation, and it's so egregious that it's he loses his lease on life. And I think for us the interesting point is to recognize how much more sophisticated the world is than we recognize. We look at ancient man who would bow down to totem poles and we look at them as fools and, and and silly primitives. But as the Rambam explains in Hilchas of Orozorah, <clears throat> idol worship had a deep and profound meaning behind it. <clears throat> Originally, they weren't just bowing down to rocks and stones. <clears throat> they were serving the spiritual components behind the physical. <clears throat> Hashem gave the sun and the moon a sar, a malach, some spiritual force that keeps it doing what it's doing, and that spiritual force has control, and people would serve it, originally for good intention, originally to serve Hashem, and then later changing it, but the point being that it's serving the spiritual world, or trying to manipulate the spiritual world in a way that Hashem doesn't want, and again, understanding that that's what a varazar is, understanding what Mahashefa is about, let us get an eye glimpse into the entire spiritual dimension to the world that we don't normally focus on. Okay, let's move on to the next mitzvah. The next mitzvah is that if you loan a Jewish person money, you should not take interest. Loan him money as a favor. Loan him money because he needs help and don't, don't demand interest from him. Now, there is a concept of a business loan, a heter isker, is used in a situation of business, meaning to say if one needs capital to begin a new venture, that's not a private loan. What the Torah is referring to is when I run out of money. I have bills to pay, I didn't anticipate, and I'm stuck. And I go to my neighbor and I ask him for money, please, can I loan money? He's asking you for a favor. Don't demand interest. <clears throat> interest is cutting. He's already in financial trouble. If you're going to demand interest, <clears throat> what's going to happen is trouble's going to become more deeper have a relationship of chesed one with the other, loan them the money, and don't ask for interest. Again, a business loan, where I need money for, for an investment, for capital, Chazal recognized that there was such a need, and they created something called a heter isker, to allow that under the exact parameters and the way the Chazal set it up. But other than that, in a normal situation where one neighbor comes to his friend for a loan, don't charge interest. In addition to that, there are a number of other things you shouldn't do. What if you loan money to someone? Reuven loaned money to Shimon, and then it came time for the payment. The 30 days of the year was up and was supposed to be paid, and Shimon doesn't have the money to pay. Reuven says, pay the money. Shimon says, "No, I don't have it. Sorry, I'd like to. Reuven is allowed to take a mashkon. He's allowed to take something as collateral to ensure him of the fact that Shimon will eventually repay. However, the Torah is very specific and very exact. If you take his clothes make sure that he has it back. If it's his night clothes, make sure each night you bring it back. If it's day clothing, make sure that each day you bring it back. Don't allow him to go without his cloak, without his coat, says the Torah. Why? that's his only cloak. That's what's going to keep his flesh covered. But what is he going to lie down with? Because if you do this, if you take his night garment and don't return it at night, or if you take his day garment and don't return it today. Hayak Eli, and he'll come out. That he'll scream to me. Says Hashem, Veshamati, and I will listen to him. Ki Chanun ani, because I am merciful. But Chanun is an interesting expression. Chanun is unlike Rachamim. Rachamim is a system of mercy that's somewhat justified, somewhat proper. Chanun is free mercy without reason, without cause. And Hashem says, Be careful. If you act in a cruel manner to a poor man and he calls out to me, I'm going to hear his cry. Why? Because I am chanun says Hashem, even if he's not justified. Explains this In that case, Shimon, of course, is wrong. Shimon borrowed money from Ruvain. It came time to pay up. Shimon didn't have the money, so Ruvain said, fine, give me a collateral. Ruvain is 100% justified in taking that collateral. And let's assume that Ruvain took the man's Bedding took his blanket and at night didn't return it. There is no complaint against Ruvain. Ruvain is justified in Din, he's a hundred percent correct. <clears throat> but the laws of justice would say <clears throat> Shimon, you owe him money, he has a right to take the blanket, the bedclothes <clears throat> as collateral. Shimon has no claim, no Taina in Din, However, says a Shim that may be true here, but I am Hanun, I'm merciful and I'm merciful even if it's unjust, even if it's true that Shimon is wrong, but if he cries out to me and I see a poor man, I see a poor man who's crying out to me, and you're the cause of it, Hashem says, I'm going to listen. And the Kofiur explains to us that almost if it could be one of the liabilities of Hashem's Rahmim is that sometimes it works against us. The Kofiur explains that if you oppress a poor man, if you oppress a widow, Hashem says, I'm going to listen to them, and, and I'm going to act in a cruel manner. Why? Because I feel their pain. <clears throat> and I feel their pain, says Hashem, and I'm going to react to it, and I'm going to act b'chari'af, I'm going to act with anger, because the rachamim of Hashem <clears throat> allows them to feel the pain, if it could be very, very acutely of a, a, an oppressed person. And the result is, if you're the person causing oppression, you will be responsible, you'll be accountable and oftentimes, the reactions are very strong and very dangerous. And it's a very important idea to keep in mind before you we act so arrogant and so flippant about oppressing people, whether it be poor people or just regular people. You know, in any social situation, it's very easy to oppress someone, very easy to embarrass them, very easy for a person to feel slighted or just not able to defend themselves. And it's hard to know how far the Rachim Mashem goes, and it's very, very important to Be ever cautious and ever careful, because again, if you cause a person pain, if you cause a person embarrassment, if you oppress them in whatever way, if they call out to Hashem, Hashem may listen to them, even though they're not justified. As the Surah says, even though Shimon in this case was 100% wrong, he has no complaint, no taina, but if he's now lying without clothing at night, and he's freezing, and he calls out to Hashem, Hashem, I don't have, Hashem will have mercy on him, and it may come back to haunt you. But there's one more line that the Surna puts in that's so interesting. The Surna says, in this case, what's going to happen? Explains the Surna that it may well be, Ruvain, that the extra money that I gave you to support other people, I'm going to take away from you. And says Hashem, don't oppress Shem. And you know why? Because I gave you extra money to support other people. And if you act in a cruel way, I may very well take that away from you. And the Chovah Zavava shares with us a profound concept. He says there are different reasons why people are given money. Some money is given to you to take care of your needs. Other monies are given to you to take care of your family's needs. And other monies occasionally are given to certain people to allow them to support other people, people in the community, people outside the community. But he explains the Chavos of Vavos that it was given to you for a purpose. And he explains that people make a mistake. They assume that every penny is theirs every penny was given to them, and if they wouldn't give money to Sadakah, if they wouldn't support poor people, they would be rich. But Nebuch, I have to give it away. Explains the Chalas of Avos that often Hashem will give you that money specifically because Hashem knows that you're a good person and allows you to get the merit of supporting others. But if you don't use the money appropriately, you won't get it. Hashem will arrange that you won't have it anymore. And I find this very interesting on a number of levels. I once not that long ago, was speaking to the executive director of one of my children's yeshiva, and I was sort of discussing with him the large tuition expenses and the obligations upon the average person to come up with a fortune of money. At which point he turns to me and says, do you know, if you take your children, all your children through all the school years, take all the tuition you're going to pay for them, if you would have all those dollars together, you could buy a helicopter. And it's true. If you're a person with a family, and you have children who go to yeshiva, you're going to pay a fortune of money over the years. A fortune. And oftentimes, there's a sense of, wow, Baruch Hashem, I'm doing well, making a lot of money, and I'm able to pay tuition, Baruch Hashem, maybe even full tuition, it's great, it's wonderful. Boy, if I didn't have this heavy burden of tuition, you know how rich I'd be? You know how wealthy i be, Hashem. I hope you appreciate that I'm giving up for you. And I'm giving up all this money, and all my wealth. I'm giving up for my children's Torah education. And if you could be, Hashem, sitting there and saying, Listen, hey, uncle, it's very good that you're giving money for your children's Torah education. But didn't you listen to the Gemara? The Gemara says, <laughs> The exact amount of money that you are to make this year is set, except for money that you spend on Shabbos, money that you spend on Bonav Talmud your children's Torah education. In those areas of Shabbos, Yontif, and Torah education, if you spend more, you're given more. If you spend less, you're given less. Let's say you decided, Yankala, you don't want to send your kids to yeshiva. You'll send them to public school, and you'll pocket the money. You're keeping the bank, you're making a mistake. You're not going to get it. I'm only giving it to you for this purpose. And if you don't use it for this purpose, you're not going to get it. So does that mean if I use it for purpose, I'm not? it doesn't come back for me? It's not on my cheshman? Oh, no. If you use it appropriately, you're given the schus, and you've spent thousands, ten thousand, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars to teach Torah to your children, and that's your eternal merit. But if you don't use it for that, you won't have it. So again, it's illustrative, because again, sometimes you hear of parents who attempted to put their children in different yeshivas, or take them out of yeshiva, even because... Who could afford the tuition? And if you knew that spending money on their tuition is the greatest opportunity in your life, obviously you're benefiting your child. But if you're afraid that it's costing you, you're making a mistake. You're forgetting who runs the world, and you're forgetting that there are provisions and conditions to your wealth. And what the Surah is sharing with us is that oftentimes Hashem will allow a person to be the benefactor. If Hashem puts you into a position where you can benefit others and you could give money to Sadaka, say the words, thank you Hashem for allowing me to be in this position. Now obviously you have to be financially responsible. And you give meiser, maybe homish, if you're wealthy, 10%, 20%. There are limits in how much money of your annual income you're allowed to give away. If you're very wealthy, it's 20%. If you're a regular person, 10%. But when you have the opportunity to give that amount, whether it's 10% or 20%, You should know and understand that those are monies that Hashem is giving you, affording you the opportunity to buy your world to come. Hashem is allowing you to be the rich man, to keep the poor man alive, and it's considered as if you gave him life. You're able to support those institutions. You're able to do with your stock of money great things. And it could well be that if you don't do those things, you won't get it, you'll lose it. So it's a win situation, and if you don't, it's quite the opposite. And I believe that's what the Possek is telling us here. Let's move on to the next Pasuk. The Pasuk says, Anshi Kodesh should a holy people you should be to me. Ubosa basa of an animal killed in the field you shouldn't eat. Lakel of Tashlichoso, throw it to the dogs. Here is the halacha of treifas, that if an animal is killed, if an animal, a sheep, for instance, is killed in the field, it's called a treifah. You're not allowed to eat it. What should you do with it? <laughs> throw it to the dogs. Rashi explains, why is it throw it to the dogs? Why don't you just say burn it or use it for leather or whatever you might want to use it? Why is it specifically throw it to the dogs? <laughs> explains Rashi, <laughs> Hashem does not hold back reward from any creation. Any creation that does what's good, what's right, what's proper, is rewarded. What does this mean? The Pesach says, when the Bnei Yisrael left Mitzrayim, the whole Bnei Yisrael, la not a dog barked. Normally, there'd be a tremendous uproar. Malach Movis <clears throat> was out that night, and the Jewish people <clears throat> were leaving. The next morning, <clears throat> there should have been a tremendous uproar, the dog should have been barking. It was silent. <clears throat> not a dog barked. And it was a much more clear Kiddush <clears throat> Hashem, much more beyond Rama, it added to the glory. Therefore, says Hashem, because the dogs didn't bark, I'm going to give them their reward forever. The Jewish people, when you have a animal killed in the field, give it to the dogs, pay them back for what they did. They were quiet; then they didn't bark. They made a kiddush Hashem. Give them their reward forever. They'll get the trefas. Now, this Rashi is very difficult to understand. Why? Because Hashem. <clears throat> told Moshe and <coughs> told the Klaeser that this was going to happen. When the Jewish people leave Mitzrayim, there will not be a dog that barks. And the reason why Hashem wanted it to be that way is because Hashem wanted the Jewish people to leave Biyad Ramah, with glory, with fanfare. And if Hashem um, arranged it, <coughs> that the dog which is normally reactive, the dog that normally barks, shouldn't bark. But you see, here's the point. The dog doesn't have free will. The dogs didn't have a meeting of the dogs and say, Hmm, guys, should we bark or not? But let's think about it. Well, Hashem doesn't want us to bark. Should we, shouldn't we? There's no debate, no discussion. Hashem arranged it that the dogs shouldn't bark. Not because the jo- dogs chose not to bark. Not because they thought about it. So why did they get reward? Forever remember the goodness that the dog gives. Forever give him the, the trefer. Dogs didn't have free will then. They didn't make a decision. Why should they be rewarded? And I believe the answer to this question requires a very, very deep understanding of systems that we don't normally think about. When Hashem created the world, <coughs> there were two systems that were in operation. Originally, <coughs> Hashem thought that it could be to create the world with midas din. <coughs> din means justice. <coughs> justice is very simple and very direct. You're held accountable. <coughs> you're responsible. If you did X. No mitigating circumstances, no questions. If you did X and Y came out for it, you are responsible, you are accountable. However, if it could be, Hashem saw that the world could not exist, because Din is extraordinarily exacting and extremely demanding. Din says that anything that comes about, you're held fully accountable for, fully responsible. And any human being who would be under that microscope Of extraordinary precise din, wouldn't make it even the others. Sarimeno, who's Judge Bedin, lost 28 years of her life, and Hashem saw that no human being could be only Bedin could stand complete absolute justice. Therefore, Hashem introduced something called Rachamim. Rachamim, loosely translated as mercy, says you have to factor in where was a person coming from, what were their intentions. Are having a good day or a bad day? Do they fully understand the gravity of the situation? What Rachmim does is introduces many mitigating circumstances and criteria into the judgment. It says, yes, Ruvain did action A, and yes, that caused this and this, but he didn't realize it was going to come about. And he didn't realize that this was going to be, so you can't hold him as responsible. But the Sham explains to us that Din is an operation and Rachmim, there's always a balance. There's always a balance. Sometimes Hashem acts with more mercy, and sometimes with less. Oftentimes, a tefillah is to ask Hashem to change the balance. Maybe I didn't change, maybe what I did before didn't change, but the system of judgment changes, and introducing more racham can have a tremendous effect. And it almost never happens that we are subject to absolute din. But din does exist, and when we leave this earth, we stand in front of din, and Din is something that actually continues to operate in the world. And if you'd like to see the, almost I'd say the good side of Din, it's exactly over here. You see, from what the dogs did, came out a tremendous Kiddush Hashem. From these dogs, not barking, there was more glory given to the Jewish people, more glory given to Hashem. Look at that, 3 million people marched out of Mitzrayim, the nation that never allowed a single slave to leave, and an entire nation walks out from it, and not a dog barks. The guard dogs, the watch dogs, are always there, always ready to pounce, sit there silent, quiet. Now granted, the dogs didn't have a choice, but through them came a much greater Kiddush Hashem. Through them came more glory, more honor, and on a certain level, it comes back to them. Why? Because absolute din demands... What came out from you, you're accountable for. From the dogs came out a great thing. From the dogs came out a kid Hashem, and there's reward coming to them. And I believe what Rashi is sharing with us is a fundamental concept. Because you see, the truth is that during our lifetime, there can be many actions that we've done that are good, but might have had a little bit of, hmm, I don't know, not such great parts to it. But what Rashi is sharing with us is a fundamental idea. If I did X and something good came about it, granted I wasn't the biggest tzaddik, granted maybe there were kavanas in it for my own honor or glory, whatever, from me came out something great that comes back to me, and it comes back to my credit, and it's something that's mine for eternity. And again, while din has a harsh side to it in the sense that it demands accountability for what we've done wrong, it has a beneficiary side in the sense that whatever we've done right, even if our kavanas aren't perfect, we still be rewarded for we still receive back on our chashmim. Okay, one more mitzvah that I'd like to finish up with. The Torah says, imo." Do not cook a gedi, a goat in the milk of its mother. Three times in the Torah, the Torah tells us, "Don't Don't cook a gedi Chazal tells us it doesn't mean a gedi; doesn't only mean a goat. It means any animal, and it doesn't only mean the milk of its mother, it means do not cook any meat in milk, do not cook it, do not derive benefit from it, and do not eat it. And this is a halacha of basa b'chalof, of meat and milk. And if you think about this halacha, it's a bit curious. It's a full loss to say, that if you cook meat and milk together, or if you derive benefit from meat and milk cooked together, or certainly if you eat meat and milk cooked together, you're over losa, say you violated a full law in the Torah. Now let's understand this halacha. <clears throat> the meat has to be kosher. The milk has to be kosher. To qualify as bas of it has to be kosher meat cooked in kosher milk. So here's the question. Keep them separate and they're both great. The meat is kosher and the milk is kosher. Mix them together. <clears> Oy <throat> <clears throat> What happened? The meat was kosher, right? The milk was kosher. Cook them together, boom, you blew it. What, what, what does this mean? What's pshat? And this is something that we call a chok. And we're supposed to, I guess, you know, certainly when you're younger, they tell you it's we can't understand, it's beyond human understanding or something like that. <clears throat> the chovos of Vovos in Shara vodos of Lakim says it's not so un- understandable, it's not so mystical. He says it's actually quite simple. He explains that when Hashem created man, Hashem made man out of two distinct dimensions. Within me, there are two diverse natures, two very separate parts. Within me, there is a heilik, a mal, a pure, brilliant neshama that only wants to serve Hashem, that only wants to do what's right, what's good, what's proper. Within me, there's a desire to serve Hashem, a desire to help other people. Within me are all the instincts to be a great human being. And within me, there's another part. There's a nefesh bahami, an animal soul, with drives and appetites, needs and desires. And if you'd like to understand that other part, the nefesh bahami, all you have to do is go into the animal kingdom, and you'll find that every animal has all of the instincts, needs, and desires imprinted into it to keep itself alive. The robin, hungers, for the worm. The cat, hungers. For the mouse, the bear is instinctively drawn to the berries that feed it, as well as the salmon that it just loves to eat. But not only does Hashem give each animal instincts, Hashem gives them the aptitude, the ability, and the intuition to know what it is that they should use as their food source. Within the animal soul, Hashem imprinted all of the needs to keep itself alive and bring the next species into existence. And this is called the nefesh habahami. An animal is alive. An animal has a nefesh. It doesn't have a neshama. It doesn't have a seichel. It doesn't have that cognitive conscious eye that thinks and deliberates, debates and decides. There's no anokhi. There's no eye in the animal. But there is a live, vibrant part within the animal. A number of years back, I wrote a book, which I primarily wrote as a kir of work. It's called The Torah Lifestyle. And I had an interesting experience because I wrote this about the Nefesh Bahami, the animal soul, and the Neshama within man, and the balance, and, and the fight back and forth. And I was, a number of years after I'd written the book, I was, in, I was giving a shear somewhere in Long Island, and a woman came over to me and says, Rabbi, I have to thank you. I read your book, and you have no idea how much it helped me. Rabbi, I can't thank you enough. Now, if you've ever been involved in any kind of Kirov, or something if you've written, you know that's it's very gratifying to hear that your words have been received, that they helped. However, I later found out that it wasn't quite as I had assumed. You see, someone explained to me what she meant. She had recently lost her dog, and she was broken, and she couldn't be consoled. And then she read in the Torah lifestyle that an animal has a soul. So she said to herself, great, Fido and I are going to meet again Hopefully many years from now we'll meet again and forever we'll be together. Now, the reason why I say that did not bring me great joy was because it's patently false. When Elsie the cow dies, her nefesh evaporates. Hashem gives it a vibrant life part to keep it alive. Once it's dead, it's smoke, it's gone. The other part of me, the neshama, lives on forever. But I whom speaking to him comprised of two diverse parts. There's a part of me that's pure, seichel. I only wants want to do what's good, what's right, and proper. There's another part of me that's akin to any other nephesh in the animal kingdom. The bear, the tiger, the lion has a vibrant, life part. Sometimes it almost looks like a dog has personality. It certainly forms attachments to its master. It certainly has a sense of loyalty. It doesn't have deliberative, cognitive skills and abilities. It doesn't have an enoki. It doesn't have its own agenda, but it acts and imitates something like thought because it has a nefesh. Within me, there's also a nefesh. <clears throat> Within me, there's a nefesh of Mahami with all of the drives, instincts, and desires. And I, whom speaking to you, <clears throat> am comprised of these two parts, and these two f- parts are fighting for primacy. <clears throat> Whichever one I exercise <clears throat> becomes stronger and becomes more dominant. If I give in to my animal passions, that part becomes stronger and stronger until it vanquishes my seichel. If I hold down the animal part and follow my and follow my pure neshama, I grow and accomplish, and the Neveja Bahami becomes weaker. And explains the Chavaz this will allow you to understand many, many of the mitzvahs in the Torah. Many of the mitzvahs in the Torah, Hashem warns us about because they will give an inordinate amount of strengthening to the Nefesh Bahami. <clears throat> if you eat bosu of meat cooked together with milk, <clears throat> it strengthens the Nefesh Bahami. Now, you probably have to be a scientist of the soul to recognize how it does what it does, <clears throat> but that it does it, <clears throat> explains the of us is a fact. <clears throat> and it's similar to things that we're involved in. If you ever notice, <clears throat> you know, if you're nervous or antsy, or if you're agitated or maybe even irritable, the first thing... <clears throat> might be recommended to you stop drinking caffeine because caffeine affects your moods affects your irritability affects the way you feel now how could that be? When I feel differently I, I'm different, I just had a cup of coffee two cups of coffee, Why, Why does it make me jittery and nervous? And the answer is there's a real effect on my, of my body upon me because I'm made of two different distinct parts and because there's a connection between my neshama and this nefzhabami I'm affected by different things. I get tired and cranky and groggy. If I drink too much alcohol, I become drunk. <clears throat> if I drink too much caffeine, I become jittery and anxious. <clears throat> and the Chavaz shares with us that many, many of the mitzvahs of the Torah were given specifically to warn man, don't do these things because they'll give an inordinate amount of strengthening to the Nefesh of Bahami. <clears throat> if you eat bas b'chalav, Chazal tell us, <clears> tree foods are matamtim alev, they deaden the heart. I've seen this in many situations, I'm certainly no novi, but I oftentimes can tell when a person eats tray food, there's a, a heaviness to the heart. They can't hear things. It doesn't penetrate. It doesn't get through. Because, again, as i explained, explain, trey food is in the heart. It deadens the heart. When you go to the dentist and it gives you Novocaine and you walk out of the office, you have to be careful not to drool because your lips are still numb. and You don't even notice the saliva, so you have to be careful. Novocaine deadens the lips. You don't feel anything. Trey food deadens the heart, and if you eat tree food, it's harder to feel Hashem's presence, harder to feel the holiness of Shabbos. It makes it more difficult for you to become a holy person. Many, many of the mitzvahs in the Torah are exactly around this point, and explains the Chavos Levovos, that's Shatnes, that's many of the forbidden relationships, and certainly it's Lose Vashel Imo. It's a chok in the sense that it requires a tremendous understanding to recognize how it functions in the human soul, but function it does and explains the whole of us the reason why the Torah warns us not to have meat and milk to cook together is because Hashem created man and Hashem created spiritual forces, warns us that these things will damage it, us and make it more difficult for us to serve Hashem properly.